We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Hi, my name is Brian and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is June 2nd, 2017. It's been a journey uh, over the last four and a half years or so, and it was an even longer journey uh, before that June 2nd date in my life. Uh, I guess I'll start at the start. Um, I'm one of two kids in the family. I'm the baby of the family. Uh, My dad was a cop um, in the city. And my mom stayed home with us and uh, worked when she could uh, once we got going to school. Kind of had a pretty typical cop's kids upbringing. Um, Those of us who are in that fraternity of cop's kids kind of know what it means to be a cop's kid. Um, You know know what dad does. Um, And he did important work. Um, We grew up in Detroit. We actually live in the city. Dad is a cop there in the city. Um, you know, and so when I was born in 1975, the city had calmed down a bit uh, from where it was at the end of the 60s, but it still wasn't a pleasant place um, for my dad to do what he did. Um, and I grew up scared. I grew up, um, if dad worked an overnight shift, I wouldn't leave for school until he came home from work, no matter how much my mom tried to let me know he was okay. Um, and so I think that's part of where fear um, started in my life and in my story. And, and it'll be a recurring theme as I share with you guys kind of the journey I've taken through life. Um, living in the city, uh, my brother and I, we always joke that our parents loved us enough to send us to Catholic schools. Uh, the Detroit public school system wasn't and still isn't um, a great educational system. And mom and dad. Um, Made made a financial sacrifice to send my brother and I to Catholic school for kindergarten um, through high school. Um, and so it was kind of a close-knit little school we went to. Um, my brother's two years older than I was, um, so I was kind of always trailing along, following his footsteps a little bit. But we each kind of had our own path we went on, so there wasn't, there wasn't too much more than the regular sibling rivalry with brothers and you know, a few shoving matches and, and fisticuffs and stuff as young kids, but you know, for the most part, it was it, it was a pretty good growing up time for us. Um, I don't have some of the the horror stories that I know that people do um, from Catholic schools. Um, I was treated well by the nuns um, in elementary school, and um, the lay teachers and the priests that we had um, in high school were always great to me. So I don't have those things. Um, but, you know, childhood was good. Um, you know, we were able to play sports. If we wanted a new bike, we got a new bike. Um, but the one thing that really stands out to me as I consider my story going back to fear is, you know, I was a pretty well-behaved kid. And I wasn't well-behaved looking back on it now for the mere fact of being a good kid. Um, I was well-behaved because I was afraid of being in trouble. Um, you know, my dad. My dad um, is a big presence still in my life, and he was this this massive, gigantic presence in my childhood. Um, he never hit us. I never got spanked by my dad. My mom yeah, had to spank me a couple times, and, and I'm pretty sure I deserve every one I got from her. Um, but I just lived lived in fear of letting my dad down. Um, I knew what he did for a living. I knew he had a hard job. And I knew he dealt with bad people, and I didn't want to be one of the bad people. Um, again, it wasn't because I wanted to be good. It's just because I was afraid to get in trouble for it. Um, and that, that's formative, I think, uh, for me as I continued on in life and, um, and and got to the point in my life where I started drinking. And so I've heard some people say, you know, get to the drinking. Um, here, here where I go, you should say get to the solution. But we can't get to the solution if we don't know what the problem is. And so um, I started drinking. I probably had my first beer or two when I was 12 or 13, you know, found some in the garage, had a couple beers. It was fine. Not a big deal. 
but I really started my drinking in earnest um, when I was in high school. Um, you know, I went I went to to a school um, that was very structured, just like my life at home had been. Um, and one of the ways I found to break away from that structure was on the weekends. And so I started off as, you know, kind of a, as a weekend drinker in high school. Um, if, you know, if we could get a hold of it, I wanted to drink it. And from the very first time I got drunk in high school, I kept drinking the same way. Um, if I started, I didn't stop until it ran out or I passed out. And that brings me to the first point of the big book. I, I, I want to read to you guys from page 24. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice and drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. And so for me, um, even in high school, the first drink led to the rest of the drinks. And that's just simply how it was. Um, but it gave me freedom. Um, it, it gave me a place to, to be someone other than, than who I was. I was no longer a cop's kid. Um, I, was, I was the guy at the party. Um, I was that guy at the party. Um, I was a guy getting in a fist fight at the party. I was a guy hitting on your girlfriend at the party. Um, I was just that guy at the party. Um, and that fear of getting in trouble just totally disappeared because when you drink to oblivion, like I did, you don't think about those things. You don't worry about getting in trouble because, because it's all gone. Um, there's no more conscious thought. And, and that's what I was after. I wanted to quiet my mind. I wanted to, find a place of ease and comfort, right? And the book talks about that. Um, but it was always a mess. It was always a shit show. Um, you know, um, I was a puker. Um, you know, I was a puke and rally guy. And those of you guys who who drink like I drank, um, you know what I mean by puke and rally. Well, we just, just throw it up and then start all over again. Um, I wasn't worried about um puking up the booze I drank because I would just go ahead and, and find more and do it and do it again until I finally passed out. Um, and that was high school for me. The only time I didn't drink in high school was during football season. I played football and one of the team rules was that if you got caught drinking, you were off the team. And that's one of the places I found my acceptance. Um, it's, it's a place where I found um, some purpose and, and felt like I fit in. And that's another part of my story. I was kind of a square peg in a round hole um, all the time. And and I found that, you know, I, I found a place to fit in um, and play in football. And so I wouldn't drink. And so, you know, our season started um, in the late summer. And so from August until we finished up in November, I wouldn't drink. I'm in high school, no matter what. Um, you know, it was it was it was it was a reason to avoid it. Um, again, though, it was the fear. It was the fear of the consequence of, of something I enjoyed doing, something I liked doing, would be taken away from me. And, and I didn't want to lose that. Um, I didn't have consequences in high school um, for my drinking. Um, you know, I, I, I think my parents knew that when I'd go spend spend a night or spend a weekend with, with, with one of my friends, um, I think they knew that that was kind of my time to, to get away and, and, and party. Um, you know, my parents wouldn't, you know, didn't say, Hey, you and your friends can come drink here. That wasn't how my house was, but I had a friend whose mom would let us drink there. Um, she wouldn't buy booze for us. Um, but we knew where the liquor stores in the city were, that they didn't care. Um, if you were wearing your, your high school letter jacket, when you walked in the door, um, they would still sell you malt liquor. And so we'd go and buy our forties and then we'd go back to his house, um, and just drink. And, that's how I spent a lot of weekends I'm away from the house, my house, um, with friends, going to parties, um, drinking till I got sick and drinking some more that I'd pass out and get up in the morning and feel like garbage. 
and say, man, I cannot wait to do that again. It's just going to be great when I feel that way again. Um, and, and that's the insanity, right? That That's the insanity of drinking for me is that um, at the end of the night, I didn't remember what I was doing. And the next morning, I always felt like garbage. Um, but man, I couldn't wait to do it again. Um, and for me, that's part of my insanity. Um, I graduated from high school and my dad was retiring from police force in the same year. And we had been taking some vacations out here to Colorado, where I live now, um, from the time I was a young kid. And, uh, you know, we were all wanting to get out of the city. Um, it just, it, Detroit's a great place to be from. I don't know if it's a great place to live anymore, but it's a great place to be from. And so, um, my brother at this point um, was in the military. And so it was just mom, dad, and I. And we said, well, mom and dad gave me the option so you can stay stay here in Michigan and go to school, or you can come out to Colorado with us. And I said, you know, I'd, I think I'd like to come out there with you guys. And, and our plan was we'd give it a year um, after we had moved out here. And so we moved out here in June um, after I graduated high school. Um, and after two weeks, I knew I didn't want to leave. Um, you know, it's like when I woke up this morning and hit the button on the coffee pot and picked up my chips and, and said the prayers I needed to say that I went outside and let my little dog out and went out and fed the chickens. And I'm looking at, at a view of the front range, um, running from south to north. And that's what I saw when I came out here. I, I just saw this unmitigated beauty. And, you know, I, after a couple of weeks, I told my mom, I said, mom, I said, I'm not, I'm not ever going back. Um, you know, I look at it now in retrospect, and it was my first attempt at a geographic. Um, that maybe if I get away from where I was, I, I can I can reinvent myself a bit, and I can find some comfort. I can find some ease. Um, I can find a way out of the fear um, I lived in of whatever expectations I thought people had on me. Um, what I've come to discover. Um, through some great conversations and doing doing the work, um, especially ninth step um, with my parents, is that um, they didn't have the expectations for me I thought they had for me. Those were all invented in my sick little mind as a kid. Um, they just wanted me to be well um, and be happy. Um, but because I had those fears, you know, I, I transferred what, what I thought to them. And um, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, so we got out here. Um, I didn't know anybody. Um, my parents had a couple friends from back in Michigan who had moved out here, so we knew them. But I didn't know anybody my age. Um, I had to get a job, so I got a job. I started at a community college, uh, which was a good, good, good way to meet some people and some things like that. Um, and so that's what it was. So it took me a little while to kind of find my groove out here. And lo and behold, I found my groove. When I met a couple guys at the restaurant I worked at who drank like I drank. And that was the groove I found. That was the comfort I found. And it was, um, I was living with my parents and going to a community college and working. And these two guys had their own place. And them having their own place meant that I had a place to go and find oblivion again. And so I didn't have to worry about what am I going to do and and who are my friends here? It was, I'm going over to these to these guys' house and hang out for the weekend after work. And it was just a nonstop party. Um, and it was drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking. Um, and getting sick and keeping drinking and passing out and waking up um, and starting up again uh, for the weekends. And it was that same cycle I had in high school just escalated because I was 18. I was 19 years old. I could, I could make my own decisions. I didn't have a curfew and things like that. And so it was, it was just this great escalation um, of my drinking. And I thought I was finding freedom. I really did. I really thought I was finding freedom. And little did I know. Uh, that I was just trapping myself more and more every time I picked up a drink. That my world was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, it never expanded. 
it never got bigger. Um, but I got through that first year or so that way, going to community college, and then it was, okay, I'm going off to university. And I went up to university, and the the first semester was an unmitigated disaster. Um, my folks, my mom and dad had said, you know, we'll, we'll split college with you. This is back when college was still relatively affordable. Um, and so they, they'd tote half the bill and I'd pay the other half of the bill. And that meant I had more money to drink with. And so my first semester, um, at university away from home, living in the dorms, um, my room was the party room. My room, um, it was, I don't know how my roommate put up put up with me for a semester. Um, it's it's a little surprised that that he asked to be moved out of my room at the end of the first semester, um, because he was kind of tired of my bullshit. Um, and so I drank and I drank and I drank and I drank and I partied and I drank. Um, I didn't go to class very often. Um, I didn't know that was why he went to college. I thought I went to college to have a good time. And so after my first semester, I got put on academic probation. And talk about fear, I had to go home at the end of the semester and tell my dad, um, whom I'd lived in fear of my whole life, that you know I'd failed, that I'd done poorly. Um, and he knew why. Um, and I remember telling him, Dad, you know, I'm on academic probation. I failed this class. I failed that class. Um, this is how it went. And it's the first time anyone had ever said anything to me about my drinking. And he said, do you think your drinking has anything to do with that? And like a good little alcoholic, I got all defensive. and said, what do you mean? I don't drink that much. What are you talking about? It's just it's classes are hard. and it's, it's more than I expected. This, that, and the other. Every excuse I could come up with. And, and, and I won't forget it. He said, he said, I can tell by your fat, rosy cheeks how much you drink. And that now means a lot more to me now than it did then, um, you know, 20 some years ago, um, because he saw it, he saw what was interfering with it. Um, but I was defensive. No, it's not. That's not what it is. Dad, the dorm food's really fattening and everything's fried and this, that, and the other. It, you know, it was about everything but my drinking. So I went back for that second semester, kind of recommitted, um, to, to being more academic. Um, but but that, that, that certainly didn't mean that I was going to do less drinking. It just meant that I was going to plan it out better. It meant that I wasn't going to drink during the week. I was only going to drink on the weekends. Um, I'd start Friday night instead of Wednesday night. And so I did. I controlled it, and I was miserable. And I wasn't happy. Um, you know, if during the week we had something going on, a group of us went out, I was probably going to get in a fist fight. So I was so angry that I couldn't be drunk right then. Um, and it, and it, it had a grip on me. It had a control of me, right? It's, it's, it's that obsession of the mind. And when I can't fulfill that obsession, then I'm out of sorts. And so I was. Um, but um, I did well enough in school to kind of keep going. Um, so I got through that semester um, with a lot of drinking on the weekends. Um, but I kept it kind of between the lines from, we'll say, Monday at noon until, you know, Thursday night. I usually kept it between the lines. Um, again, not having a whole lot of fun. Um, at semester, my roommate had asked to be moved out. Um, so I had a room just to myself, um, which meant that I had a place to drink on the weekends. Um, sometimes with other people, a lot of times by myself. Um, and this is that's kind of where, it, where that part of the downward spiral started for me, was I had that room to myself. If I didn't want to be with anybody else, I could get a bottle and I could just drink. But I made it through that semester. I came back home that summer. Um, Dad was a little happier with grades. Um, I didn't have to have another one of those awkward conversations about my fat red cheeks. Um, and then I went back for my what would be my third and final semester at that school. Um, so I get there in the fall. And I joined a fraternity, which I thought was a grand idea. Um, and there were some great guys in that fraternity. I just didn't happen to be one of them. Um, I was the one who was always looking for a party. And and if if 
you know, you want a reason to drink, live with, you know, 30 other guys because every night of the week, there's always something to do. Um, and so about October of that semester, I quit going to class and there was no more drinking on the weekends. And the weekend usually started on Wednesday. I mean, it finished on Monday. So that gives you a, a day and a half to go to class. I just didn't go. Um, and I drank myself out of college. Um, and anytime I got sober enough and came out of the, 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 the doldrums long enough to think about, oh, shit, what's going to happen? That fear would creep back up, that fear of disappointing the people around me, that fear of disappointing my parents. Um, and I had a medicine for that. And so then I just drank more. But that December was a reckoning. I had to go home. I had the letter in my hand that said, you're no longer welcome to re-enroll at our college. And I had to sit down and tell my parents that. And I sat on it for a few days. And I think, you know, dad knew what was coming. And I came home from work one night. Um, I was working at the same restaurant I worked at when I first moved out here. And he was sitting at the table. And he said, well, what about school? So all that I got kicked out. And he just looked at me with this very sad and disappointed look in his eye. He said, I'll let you know when you're allowed to talk to me about it. And so for another two weeks, I was still living at mom and dad's house because I couldn't go back to the fraternity house because I was out of college. Um, and so I'd slink in and out um, to go to work and come home. And I was embarrassed and I was broken. Um, but I wasn't willing to acknowledge why it happened. Um, so finally, after about two weeks, came home from work one night. It was much like the night I told told my parents that I got kicked out. And my dad was at the table again, and he said, "Well, what are we going to do to fix it?" And he and he, and he offered me an out. Um, he didn't yell. He didn't scream. He offered me an out. He said, "You know, what are we going to do to fix it?" Um. I wish I would have grabbed hold of that gift. Um, I wish I would have realized that I didn't have to be afraid of him, that he was just trying to help. Um, but I had come up with an idea of an academic plan to, to get myself through school. And, and I thought I thought I'd figured out what I wanted to study. Um, I wanted to study literature. Um, and I said, well, dad, you know, it's, I think this is a path I want to take. And he said, okay, good. He said, but you just have to know you're walking that path by yourself. You'll get no, he won't get a dime from me um, because you proved that you don't deserve it. Looking back at it now, 20 years later, that was fair. <laughs> you know, what it did was fair, but I, you know, I had some justified anger about the, the how dare you and what do you mean? And, and I've got a plan now. And you know, what about this? And what about that? But I had a plan. Uh, my plan was to go, go back to community college and kind of get my stuff together and then go up to a, to a different university and, and pursue a degree. So I knew if I was living at home with mom and dad, going to community college, um, I wouldn't have the occasion to drink the way I drank when I was away at school. Um, call it a geographic if you want to. Um, call it just having you know a brooding influence to kind of keep me on the straight and narrow. So for that, for that year, I went back to community college. I was kind of on the straight and narrow. Um, you know, I, I worked and I went to class. That's all I did. Um, and so I worked as much as I could and I took as many classes as I could and I got my kind of got myself gathered back up. Um, and so after a year of controlled drinking, we'll say, um, I probably was only drunk two or three times in that year. Um, I was going back up to the university, but I knew I knew I couldn't live on campus. Um, I, knew, I knew I couldn't be surrounded by that. So, I, so I, I had a geographic solution to that. I got a job at a ranch um, about a half an hour away from campus I was going to. And so I'd have to be up early in the morning to do chores and feed horses and whatnot. And then I got a job cooking at night. And so I figured if I can keep myself as busy as possible, I'll stay focused on class and it won't be like it was last time. Um, that lasted a couple of weeks. That lasted a couple of weeks until I found some people um, who drank like I drank um, at the restaurant I worked at. And, and 
you know, I kept it together better than I did when I was living in the dorms and living in the fraternity house. And I'd, I'd have these stretches of commitment to my academics and the stretches of commitment to the work I was doing and things like that. Um, but they'd last a month or so. And then it was, hey, you know what? This song came on the radio at work and it talks about drinking. We should have a big party tonight. And that big party wouldn't, for me, just wouldn't last that night. It would last the next week or two. Um, so I could, so grades would go up and down, up and down, up and down as, as the semesters went. But I got through. Um, and I graduated. I got my degree. Um, I interviewed for one job, and I got that one job that I interviewed for, so I was happy. I want to go back through those five or six years, though. The one thing you haven't heard me talk about um, from high school and college is friendships. I lived alone. Um, to this day, I have one friend from high school. Um, he's my best friend. We've been through a lot together. Um, you know, I think the, the best I can say about he and I is, is that in, in the middle of one of our drunken weekends, we promised each other that we'd never do any drugs. And so I've only got one one substance in my story, and that's booze. Um, and I don't say that flippantly or, or proudly or, oh, see how, see how good of a drunk I am. It's, uh, it's the, the only reason I only have one substance in my story is because I promised somebody and he promised me that that's all we'd ever do. And we did it well. But he's the only friend I have from high school. Um, I don't talk to anybody else from high school with. And the high school I went to, uh, being, being the school it was, it was, it was a very close-knit community. Um, but I wasn't part of it. I was always apart from, never a part of. I don't have one friend from college. I don't have one friend from community college the first time, community college the second time. I don't have one friend from my first stint at university. And I don't have one friend from my second stint at university. Um, because I didn't know how to make relationships. It's one of the things that alcohol blocked me off from. I had this immense inability to create any sort of meaningful connection with another human being. And I look back on it now and, you know, we shall not dwell morbidly on the past nor wish to shut the door on it. I don't dwell morbidly on it, but I don't shut the door on it. There's a reason for that. And I was the reason. Because booze is what I wanted. I wanted to be drunk. I wanted to not feel. And in pursuing that 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 oblivion, it really wiped out any opportunity I had to form meaningful relationships with people around me. Um, and so I've got that one guy in my life um, you know, that we've been close since our freshman year of high school. Um, otherwise, it's just it, it was just me. In my drinking career, it was, it was just me on my own. And that's changed now. And I'll talk about that a little later. Um, but that's changed now. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's overwhelming for me to think about that sometimes. That I shove so many people away in my life. Um, but luckily, blessedly, um, that's not the life I have now. Um, I'll give you guys a couple specifics, um, of, of, of how I drank, um, just a couple stories. Cause I don't love war stories, but I think it's important for newcomers to hear it. Um, so they can hear a similarity. Um, so that best friend from high school was getting married um, the first time and had a bachelor party um, up, up at a cabin, family cabin up in Northern Michigan. Um, and so I flew in, uh, spent a week with them get some stuff together for the wedding that was coming up, you know, later and to have this bachelor party. And, you know, it was going to be a big blowout. Um, you know, we're in our, we're in our early to mid twenties and, and there's, there's just beer and booze and beer and booze and beer and booze and food. And that's what it's going to be. And it was a weekend long extravaganza, um, that I don't remember much of. I simply don't remember much of, but there's one part of it that stands out to me. Um, and that I've remembered from the day it happened, um, and I still remember it now. And, and we were, I don't know, two days into the weekend of 
I'm drinking and I'm standing out in the woods next to it, just puking my guts out. I mean, just sicker as all as I could be. And my buddy says, and do you think you're allergic to alcohol? And I just kind of laugh it off and say, get me another beer. But I never forgot him saying that to me. I never forgot him saying, do you think you're allergic to alcohol? I didn't know what that meant until I came into the rooms. I am allergic. My body acts, reacts differently when I put it in my body than it does for most of the people around me. Um, that's the only part of that week I remember. That's the absolute only part of that week, week I went back with Patrick Party's wedding that I remember is him saying, do you think you're allergic to alcohol? It didn't make me stop and consider. It didn't make me go, well, maybe I should stop it. Maybe I should slow down. Um, uh, oh, about a year and a half, two years later, um, I met my first wife. And uh, we dated, um, got engaged, got married. I was working. I was very happy um, in my career and what I did. Um, you know, I was able to, to to basically study and talk about literature for a living. And so it was a pretty good deal for me. Um, and so I got married the first time. Um, after about two years, we had, we had our, our daughter. And then two years after that, we had my son. Um, I drank. I drank during that time. Um, kind of had to keep it a little more together. Um because I had a job, I had a wife, I had kids, I had a mortgage, I had bills. And so I became more of, more of kind of a binge drinker. And it, was, um, it wasn't five, six nights a week. Uh, it was the weekend. Um, and sometimes I couldn't do it on the weekend uh, because we had whatever going on with kids and the family. So if I just had a Saturday to do it, I'd start right when I got up in the morning. And I would drink all the way till I went to sleep at night. And I say go to sleep, I mean pass out. Um, and, um, it was, it wasn't a good marriage. It wasn't a happy marriage. Um, it wasn't her fault. It wasn't my fault. It was all of our faults, um, but alcohol played a big role in it. It made me emotionally unavailable. Um, and that goes back to the idea of not having friends. Um, you know, I, I had to search to get guys to fill out my side of the wedding party. Um, because I didn't have the kind of close friends you'd think like I went to my, my best man, my best friend. And then after that, I was like, God, I, how am I going to fill out the rest of this wedding party? Um, and so when you're as emotionally unavailable as that, it's hard to be a good husband. Um, I tried my best to be a good dad. Um, and I think there was days that I was a really good dad. And then there's days that I was drunk or hung over and I wasn't a really good dad. Um, and, and I think those are some of my biggest moments of sadness um, is that I let my kids down um, when they were young um, and they saw me drink uh, and there were mornings where I couldn't get up and make breakfast. Uh, and, and, and that's hard for me. That's really hard for me. Um, you know, those, my two kids are, they're both teenagers now. Um, you know, letting them down is, is, is hard. Um, and the realization of it, but I've got the ninth step for that. And I was able to do that. And I'll talk about that in a little bit too. Um, but I just kind of, just kind of wandered through those six or seven years of my first marriage. Um, and we finally decided the best thing was to get divorced. Um, neither one of us was happy. The kids weren't necessarily happy because mom and dad didn't like each other very much. And we separated so we separated, you know, the period you've got to separate before the divorce can go through. I mean, it was a bit contentious, but we were both successful enough that we didn't want to displace the kids. And so we kept the house we had, and then we got a little two-bedroom apartment. And so we do a week on, week off during our, you know, whatever it was, six months of separation. Um, and so if it was my week with the kids, I would stay at the house with them, and I wouldn't drink. And the week I wasn't with them, I'd stay at the apartment and I'd drink. And that's what I'd do. And I'd show up to work, um, hungover, <laughs> or still drunk. Um, 
every morning. And it was just, it was this week on week off of my disease of being miserable because I couldn't do it when I had the kids because I didn't want to, I didn't want to be that guy. And then being miserable because of the way I drank the weeks I didn't have the kids. And it just went back and forth. And it was a, a pretty, pretty awful cycle to be in this back and forth, back and forth of it. Um, but I got through it. The divorce went through. Um, I ended up keeping the house in the arrangement. Um, and so my kids didn't, didn't get fully displaced. They didn't lose, you know, their childhood home where they grew up. They got to keep that. Um, and they also got to keep a dad who was a drunk. Um, and I tried, I tried really hard. Um, when I was just single dad, me to not drink when I had the kids, um, but there's nights when they'd go to bed and the bottle came out the next morning was always really hard. And then I'd have guilt and I'd feel awful about it. And then I could store that guilt up until they were gone back and you know, went to their mom's house. And then I could just drink the way I needed to drink. And that's when I started having to call in sick to work. Um, you know, I prided myself on never having to call in sick. And that's the point where I had to start calling in sick to work. I, I couldn't. I couldn't get in the car in the morning. Couldn't get in the pickup. Um, I physically couldn't walk a straight line to get to it, so I'd call in sick. And luckily, we didn't even have to call. It was a computer system. I'd get on the computer. I'd put in that I was going to be out sick that day. This is what needs to get taken care of. I'll be back tomorrow. And that seemed normal to me. That seemed like that's just kind of the way it goes. Um, and it just it wasn't any good. I wasn't happy. I was alone again. Um, and it just wasn't I wasn't in a good place. Um, and after about a year and a half of living that way, I met someone. Um, someone that I had known years and years before when I, when I was first married and my daughter was, was just a little baby that someone that you know, I kind of tangentially known and this person came back into my life and we enjoyed each other when we met. Um, we dated and it's the only person since I had been divorced and I wanted to meet my kids. Um, and so she met my kids and uh, we ended up getting married. And I'm still married to her today um, because she's the strongest person I know. Um, I was still drinking um, but I think because I had found some, some peace and some happiness, some security in life, it wasn't kind of the way it was, um, where it was a four or five night a week thing, but it was still, if I started, I couldn't stop. And I'd always do, you know, I'd always start and not stop at those inopportune times. The big book talks about. Um, at a birthday party, one of my wife's friends, at a family wedding, um, you know, falling down drunk on the dance floor. It was just, that's the way I drank. If I started, I couldn't stop. Um, there was a big family gathering or they have every year, her side of the family, uh, celebrate harvest. Um, and so we go, go to that party and I start, which means I'm not going to stop. I don't remember getting back to the house we were staying at. I just remember waking up and my wife wasn't in there in the, in the same room and she was sleeping out on the couch. I said, why are you sleeping on the couch? And she said, because I don't like when you act like that. Um, and I knew what she was talking about. That didn't mean I stopped. It meant that I was sorry, and I was. Um, but... It wasn't enough to push him over the line uh, to say, you know what, maybe you should, maybe you should change something in your life. Um, shortly after that, um, we're back here at home. Kids are middle school and elementary school. Um, I, I drive them, I drop them off to, at school on my way to work in the mornings. And it was a, a Tuesday or Wednesday morning. All of a sudden there's a knock on the bedroom door. And it's my daughter saying, Dad, it's time to go to school. And I roll over, and there's a puddle of puke in the pillow next to me. I've got to get up. I've got to take him to school. And I've got to call him. You know, I've just just a mess. Just a mess. Um, 
remember the first time my wife really said anything about my drink? She's like, did you drink that much last night? Maybe it's time to slow down. So I did. Um, I said, I'm not going to drink for a month. And I didn't. Um, I spent, you know, 30 days thinking about when the 30 days would be over so I could drink again. Um, and that's, that's, that's who I was. Um, it's disappointing. It's disappointing to know that that's where I was. And even though I'd, I couldn't get the kids to school, puking the bad lucky, I didn't aspirate. Um, that's where my life was. Um, and that's how it was until I got to my end. Um, until I got to my end. Um, and the end for me came um, in jail. Um, there's a there's a guy that that I see in the rooms quite a bit. He's got 50 years sobriety. Um, and he always talks about the bills are always due. The bills are always due. And I had a bill that was due. Um, and I had, I had a legal issue. That was a direct, direct result of my drinking. Um, things that happen in a blackout still count. They still count for me. They still count for everyone involved. They still count for the legal system. And that's what it was for me. And I got a phone call um, when I was at dinner with my wife and the kids, and I saw it was a detective, um, and I sent it to voicemail, and then I got home, I listened to it, and she said, there's two felony warrants for your arrest. You can come turn yourself in, or we'll come get you. And so I, was, I had to turn myself in on a Friday. And that was a low for me. That was it. So my wife... <laughs> Drove me to the county jail. I turned myself in. And they had me sit in the waiting room. And I sat there. And then they two deputies came up. And, this is your name? Yep. Put handcuffs on me. And they put me in that elevator down to the basement of the jail. And I was processed in. Um, and I was overwhelmed. Talk about fear. I didn't know what to do, but I knew I knew what got me there. I knew what got me to that place in life. You know, I hear people say, well, shit hit the fan in my life. The shit's never hit the fan in my life. I, all, I have always grabbed a big handful of it and thrown it up against the fan blades. I've made the mess. And I made the mess. And I get processed in and processed through. And they say, I'm going to be there for the weekend and I'll be able to see a judge Monday. And we're locked in our cells 21 hours a day for that weekend. And so I get to my cell and I walk in the door and there is that electric metallic clank that anybody who's been incarcerated knows what it is. And that was the end for me. That was the end. And in that cell, I hit my knees and I asked God for help. And that's, my, that's why my sobriety date is June 2nd, 2017. It's a bittersweet day because it's the day that I finally ask for help. But it's also, it was the first day of my incarceration. And there's this very weird beauty to it. So I've always got a reminder of what got me there. And so I hit my knees that day in jail and asked for help. And it showed up the next morning. There was a guy on the bottom level of the block from me who had the DT so bad they could barely medicate him. You know, for the time that we got to come out of ourselves to eat, he couldn't even come out of his cell and there's nurses in and out, nurses in and out. And I realized that was God putting a mirror in front of me of this is where you're going. This is the next step for you. This is alcoholic insanity and this inability to live. And I made up my mind when I got out that I was done. That was it. I wasn't going to drink anymore because I knew what had got me where I was. Um, I had a former neighbor who I knew was in the program. And the only reason I knew he was in the program is because he did a night step with me. And so I called him up and I said, hey, I, said, I know you got sober. How did you do it? And he said, well, 
said, Alcoholics Anonymous worked for me. He said, these are the meetings that I went to when I first came in. I'd recommend you go. And I did. I went. I had to get a couple legal things squared away. Um, I got out of jail on a Monday. So on Thursday, I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I sat in the parking lot of that church and I was scared. And I didn't know what to expect. And I was broken. Um, I was just broken. And I walked into that little room. And there's this group of 20 or 30 people. And they're happy. They were joyous and they were free and they welcomed me. They didn't mind that I was there. Um, I didn't think I'd be welcomed anywhere again in my life. But I was welcomed. And they asked at the beginning of the meeting, anyone here for the first meeting ever? Raised my hand and said, I'm Brian, I'm an alcoholic. About halfway through the meeting, the chair of the meeting said, would you like to tell us why you're here? Um. And I just, I just let it go all over that meeting. I made a mess of myself. This is why I'm here. My life is this and that. I just, you know, just, you've been to meetings, you've known. Um, and they didn't tell me to shut up. They didn't tell me to quit whining. This one guy, Rick, um, he now lives down in Arizona, said, you never have to feel this way again. Right after I finished, tell him what a mess I'd made in my life. He said, you never have to feel this way again. And I didn't know if I believed him or not. Then after the meeting, he and a couple other guys, one of them ended up being my sponsor, said, here, we want to give you something. Here's a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, why don't you read these pages when you go home tonight? He said, then just keep reading them and then come back tomorrow. And what he told me to read, um, you know, ended up being the promises. And it ended up being the promises. And it ended up being, being the step 10 stuff. And so I read it and I went back the next day. And I got a sponsor. And, you know, I tell people now in the, in the program, come to meetings, don't drink, get a sponsor. Come to meetings, don't drink, get a sponsor. And I got a sponsor. Um, four days after my first meeting, I walked up to this guy. Um, he had something I wanted. Um, he just... He had this kind of force around him that was positive. I wanted that. And, and I walked, walked up to him and I said, you know, would you be my sponsor? And he said, well, what do you want? And I said, I want to be sober. He said, no. He said, what do you want from me? I said, I want your help. And he asked me exactly the right question. What do you want? Help. I'd gone through life never wanting to ask for help. I'd do it myself. And the guys that I, that I see in meetings all the time um, always laugh at me when I say I can be a petulant two-year-old. I do it. I do it. I do it. Um, but I couldn't. And in that simple supplication and that simple surrender, a brand new way of life was opened up for me. A brand new way of life where I didn't have to do it on my own, where I didn't have to be all by myself by choice. Um, and that was the start. That was the starting point of a new way of life for me. Um, so for the whole first nine months of my sobriety, um, I was unemployed and unemployable for the first two, three months of it. Couldn't get a job. No one would hire me because of the charges I had hanging over my head. So I got a job doing freelance landscaping stuff. And so I'd get up at, early in the morning and go work until 11 and then I'd go to a meeting at noon and then I'd go back to work in the afternoon. And that was, that was Monday through Friday for me. And then my sponsor and I would decide if we're going to meet once or twice that week after the meeting. Um, and then I had to go meet with my lawyer. So for that, that first nine months of my sobriety, I had felony charges hanging over my head that were a direct, direct result of my drinking. And I never got overwhelmed by it. My sponsor and my dad went to every single court appearance with me, except one. Uh, my mom and dad had plans to go to a trip to Hawaii that they wanted to go on for years and years, celebrate a wedding anniversary. And I had a, had a quick 15-minute appearance, and my dad said, Brian, 
I'll cancel the trip. I said, no, dad, I want you and mom to go. It'll be okay. Um, and so other than that, my dad and my sponsor were at every court appearance I had. Those two men stood right by me, and I was no longer alone. I was no longer alone because I accepted help. So I was willing to say, I can't do it on my own. I'm not big enough. And what I came to discover was that I was never alone. That I always had a higher power working in my life. Um, I call my higher power God. And God was always there working in my life, but, but I didn't tap into it. And it's one of the things my sponsor said to me when we were talking about the second step is, you know, just are you willing? Are you willing? Yes, I'm willing. And he said, Brian, he said, if, if your higher power is not big enough, borrow mine. Just borrow mine. And so I did have to borrow his for a while. Um, and it worked out. It worked out really well for me um, because I just kept progressing through the steps. And life wasn't always great. It wasn't always easy. It wasn't always wonderful. I had court stuff hanging over my head. I knew I was going to do jail time coming out of it. Um, but I stayed sober. And I started to repair some things in my life. And things started to get a little bit better, um, piece by piece by piece. Um, but the, the further I went into the steps, the easier it got with me to handle everyday life. I got a job after being sober for three, about three months. So I asked somebody for help. I reached out to someone I knew. I said, hey, I'm just I'm trying to, to, to just get a job right now. It's going to support my family. Got a text back immediately. Call this person. I'll have a job for you tomorrow. Oh, I got it, God. I can't do it myself. No matter how many applications I filled out, I still have to check that that box that no one wants to check about felonies. Um, but just asking for help one time. And I think that was one of the big spiritual experiences for me the big book talks about is I had the realization that I didn't have to do it on my own anymore. That if, if I simply ask for help from another alcoholic, from someone outside of the program, from my wife, from my kids, from my parents, from whoever it is, every time I do that, I'm actually asking God for help. I'm, I'm telling God, I can't do this. It is not of me to get this done. I need help. And every time I've asked for help, I've gotten it. Um, I got help from the sponsor. He took me through the steps. My life began to open up to me. And what I discovered, contrary to what I thought when I came in, was that I wasn't a bad person getting good. I was a sick person getting well. And the medicine I need for my sickness is AA. So I have a home group. I have a service position in that home group. I have other meetings that I go to. Now that I'm employed and employable, I can't go to that noon meeting every day. But if we're off of work because of weather, that's where I go at noon. Because I'm getting well every time I'm in that meeting and I can be of service to somebody else. Um, you know, I still go to meetings because they're important. I mean, I'm four, a little over four and a half years sober and I go because they're important. I'm going to share one story about how important they are and then, then, I'll, then I'll close out what I'm going to say. Um, I'd never lived more than two hours away from my parents um, until this September. Even when I was in college, they were only two hours away. And so I'd always had them close at hand um, in my life. doesn't mean I used them well, but they were there, and they were constant in my life. So this past September, um, my daughter was moving off to college. That's a big deal for a dad um, whose daughter lets him be a part of her life, um, a dad who promised his daughter that she'd get out of college without any debt and she believes him. And so I've got to work to keep that true. And then my parents are moving back to Michigan. And that was hard for me. It was hard for me because what I'd come to understand in my, in my sobriety coming up to this past September is that they were always there for me. I never had anything to fear. I had created all the fear, but I had blocked myself off from a full loving relationship with them. And so what do I do when I'm in fear? I get angry. I was upset about it. I didn't like the way they were planning their move. I didn't like how dad wanted to do it. Um, and I was just out of sorts. And I went to a meeting that had just opened back up in life. Um, 
you know, meeting face to face. And I ran into a buddy in the program has been about the same amount of time I, I am. And we were talking after the meeting. He said, how are you, man? That's one of my favorite things of in the program is, is the friends I have now. We say, how are you? We want to actually know how you are. We do not want you to say fine. We don't want you to say okay. So, well, man, I'm out of sorts. So my folks are moving. So, wow. And so I was kind of going through my bullshit of, of the poor little old me aspect of the movement. And he said, stop. Did you ever think that they wanted to move for the last five or ten years and they couldn't because your life was such an unmitigated disaster and shit show? And I just started crying. I just wept and wept and wept. And he stood there with me and let me cry. And I told him, thank you. I said, thank you. That's what I needed. Two weeks later, mom and dad are staying in our house for a few, for about a week before they, they head out. And dad and I were the first ones up on a Sunday morning. And we're having coffee outside, looking at the pasture together. And he said, you know, your mom and I couldn't do this five years ago, but we know you're okay now. And we can. Still makes me cry. Still does. That's why I go to meetings. Because I find the solution to me in the meetings. Um, I'm going to close with my favorite closing of, of the meetings that I go to. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask me in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. I love the way you ended with the story of how we call each other out on our stuff. Like, not only do we ask, how are you? And we really want to know, we also are comfortable and safe enough with one another to, to call each other out. And in our rooms around here, we often say that our higher power speaks to us through one another. And I think that's kind of universal. Yeah, I do. And that's, that's one of the big differences in my life. I don't live a life alone now. Um, I've got true, actual, real friendships um, that are reciprocal and that build on each other and that I can be a conduit for my higher power. And I know the friends I have in my life are conduits for that higher power now, too. All the way back to the friend at the wedding saying, do you think you're allergic to alcohol? It's it's always been happening. We just weren't always paying attention. I don't think it's unique to us that this happens, that the universe no, communicates I, to us. Yeah, but I've, I've got to be conscious enough to listen. Right. But your memory listened. Some part of you listened. Well, and that, I think that's what's amazing. I, I really don't. I don't remember the rest of that week, but I remember that. I remember that. Um, and that's it's powerful i used to call yeah. those like core memories where you remember like why did that get flagged in my memory and <laughs> but we know now at least with that one so your story had a lot of a lot of fear and a lot of loneliness so what did these look like today in terms of um, you gave us an example of you were probably fearful when your parents were moving just a few months ago, and you gave us kind of an example of of going to the meeting and talking about it. But today, when you get lonely, uh, what does it look like? Um, you know, I don't. 
I don't get overwhelmed by being alone anymore. Um, there's a big difference um, between being alone and being lonely, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I could never be alone before um, because if I was alone, then I felt lonely. Um, and now some of my favorite moments are, are my alone time. Um, we've got a little a little spread of land out here, and I've got some critters I take care of. And so when I get up in the morning, it's just me. Um, and it's just me and my one dog I've got left. I had to put another dog down a few weeks ago. Um, and then whatever critters I've got to feed right now, it's just chickens. And then it comes to spring, it'll be turkeys and pigs and I'm alone. And what I do when I'm alone now is I listen to God. You know, I, I just listen for what's to, what's to come in the day. And that's my meditation time. Um, and, and I don't have to be alone. Um, if, if something, and it's usually fear that caused me to be lonely. Um, I'd isolate because I was fearful and I didn't want to tell anybody I was scared. Right. Because then I'm not who I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to you know, be able to measure up to this, that, and the other of whatever unrealistic, unrealistic expectation I set for myself. Um, but I'm even if I'm alone, I'm not lonely because because I know I have people I can count in my life now. And the, at a moment's notice, I can send a text, make a phone call, walk into the room where my wife is, go talk to my son, call my daughter at college, and I've got an immediate connection with somebody who cares about me. I'm no longer blocking myself off from those connections. I love the difference between being alone and loneliness. And I love the way you described the serenity of being alone now and loneliness kind of no longer exists. I think that comes out for me of being like vulnerable and honest and not keeping Mm -hmm. secrets over time. And when they're, when we like clean our side of the street, like you read out of the book, we are able to be, completely connected to other people. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So step nine and your children, what does Mm -hmm. that look like? Or, or your parents even, I imagine that's probably developed a bit over the last few months or, or changed since they've moved. Um, so, so step nine with my kids, my kids were 11 and 13. Um, when I threw the shit against the fan in life. Um, and and when I threw it against the fan, I threw it big, like, um, it was publicized and all these things. So it impacted my kids that way too. Cause there's dad's name in the newspaper and things like that. Yeah. Um, and it was hard. Um, you know, so I, my sponsor and I were working through the steps and, and I had my list and I said, Tom, I have to do this with the people closest to me first. I've got to do the night stuck with my wife and my kids and my parents first. It's not going to be easy, but I have to. Um, and so my sponsor and I came up with a plan. And he said, this is how I want you to go through it with your son. Because he's only 11. And this is how I want you to go through it with your daughter. Because she's 13. And she understands a little more than he does. Um, I didn't have to do it alone. And that's that's one of the beauties of sponsorship. Is I've got this guy um, who's had experience. Who, who had now adult kids that were about my kid's age when he got sober and had a wife who stuck with him um, through the mess of it. And, and he could walk me through it. And so I went into it, not having to do it alone. And so we came down in the basement of the house, which is um, our little house that the basement is the kid's domains. And so I went and met him in their place. I sat down and I talked with my son. Um, and he, <laughs> from the time he was little, um, you know, whenever, whenever their personality really emerges, he's one of two things. He's either the sweetest person in the entire world, um, or you've done something to hurt his feelings. That's it. Um, and he was the sweetest kid in the world. He gave me a big hug and he said, Daddy, I love you. Um, I would like to say it went as smoothly with my 14 or my 13 year old daughter, but it didn't. She accepted my amends um, with skepticism, which is her right. Um, and then, about three months later, um, she had my parents tell me that she didn't want to live with me anymore. And that was her right, too. And my sponsor was out of town. And so I called a guy who was kind of my stand-in. Um, and I said, Neil, I need to talk to you about what's going on. Because I knew his kids had been estranged from him for years and years in sobriety. And so he and I met. And he said... In this very direct way of talking, he said, so 
Are you fucking surprised? And I said, no. And he said, well, he said, tell me about the night step you did with your daughter. So I walked him through it and talked about not being able to get up to take it to school and letting him on this way and causing embarrassment. And he's like, he goes, he goes, good. You've done your part. He said, now your part's to be patient. Now your part is to be patient. All things happen in God's time. Three years later, my daughter said, Dad, I want to come back and live with you again. Because I had followed through on the living amends of that ninth step with her. That's a miracle. That's a miracle in the program. That's not of me. That's of my higher power. I love that. I really, really love that. You've done your part now. Your part is to be patient. Yeah. That's not easy. <laughs> no. I don't think it's no, easy. No, it's not easy. No. I also love the, you never have to feel this way again. I think that's the best thing anyone can ever say to the newcomer when they come in broken and lost and alone. Final question. For that newcomer out there listening, what message would you like to leave with them? Um, you're not alone. Um, I think that's that's the most powerful thing I can say. It's 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 what I tell people um, when I meet them at a meeting. It's what I tell people when I interact with them online. Um, if I see they're struggling, you are not alone. You are not alone. You are not alone. You're welcome with us. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.